Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming, host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic They make me feel polished and modern, and the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at McLaughlin, and so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands, and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers, and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z-ZIBBY20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white, open, long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corning America. Check it out, Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me, every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Christy Tate is the author of BFF, a memoir of friendship lost and found. 
Christy is also the author of the New York Times bestseller Group, which was a Reese's Book Club selection. She has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, and elsewhere, and she lives in Chicago with her family. By the way, right after we recorded this episode, she got up and went to Zibby's Bookshop in Santa Monica and took a bunch of pictures and posted them on her Instagram at Christy O'Tate, which was so sweet. Anyway, we had a blast talking. And by the way, no, I did not write the word down as I said I would after this episode. Oh, well, maybe next time. Welcome, Christy. Thanks for coming back on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. After group, now you're talking about BFF, a memoir of friendship lost and found. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. You too. I always love your books because I get to know all these different sides and bits of you and I don't know. After you do a few more of these, like what's there going to be left? (laughs) There'll be nothing left. You will certainly know it all. Yes. (laughs) So why don't you explain to listeners what BFF is about? Sure. I spent a lot of my adult life actually starting at age 17 when I had my first relationship with a boy and I did the cliche thing of sort of dumping all my friends because my relationship with my very first boyfriend was pretty toxic and I kept that pattern up. So I spent all my 20s and half of my 30s trying to get straight romantically. And once I settled down and I found the right person for me and it was in a healthy relationship, all of a sudden I looked around and I realized I had a lot of work to do in friendship. And I had a friend who sort of tapped me on the shoulder once I settled down and she said, hmm, are you ready to do this work? And she was sort of offering to be like the buddy system and we were going to together learn how to be better friends and let go of this idea that we were the kind of girls who weren't good to be friends with. And we were going to turn that around. And the book is the story of my friend Meredith and I excavating and rehabilitating ourselves as friends. I love that. You talked a lot in the beginning of this book about having a boyfriend who was just, I mean, you mentioned toxic, but the boyfriend who you talk about a lot in the book had a drinking problem, you were by his side, you didn't like it, it raised issues in you, but you couldn't figure out a way out, essentially. You couldn't alter his behavior, you couldn't leave. Tell me more about that relationship and even how it affected your friendships. This is my very first boyfriend ever, and I was the kind of girl who, I mean, mean, it was such basic low self-esteem and insecurity, and the minute a boy liked me, Of course, I loved him and I would do anything to keep the relationship. And I was a dramatic, sensitive 17-year-old. And also, as a side note, I had a lot of secrets. I had an eating disorder. So I was sort of, I had a lot of work to do that I wasn't doing at 17. So I hook up with this guy who's a huge drinker and pot smoker. Our very first encounter, he called me after a dance. So this is like 11 o'clock at night. And he said, come over right now. If you don't come, Sasha will come. And I was like, it's love. <laughs> like it's so, it's so terrible. And I, I just would have done anything. I wanted the attention. I had such a hole in my soul that I thought a boy could fix. And it really did take me until my early 30s to unwind from that. And I grew up in an alcoholic home and I was really deeply touched by the disease of alcoholism. And what that did was I just dove into the relationship and it took all my energy every single bit. I was writing his papers and writing my own papers. And by the time you're doing someone's homework and trying to get someone to stop drinking, you don't have time to 
go to the mall or hang out with your friends and listen to records like I did before I had a boyfriend. Well, you even say how each group of girlfriends you would make, you then quickly discarded. Like you had trouble once you were really focused in on a new relationship with maintaining even the girls you went to the parade with and um, yeah. you know, the, the, the past girls in your life. What does that look like? Do you just stop emailing them? Do you just, or you're just like, I'm too busy or, you know, too distracted? Right. Like there were, I think there were several mechanisms. And one is, I think I had this way of always telling myself I was different and I sort of had a mental template that I'm just, I, I would set myself apart. And I didn't understand that I was engineering that. So I had this great group of friends in law school. I mean, you, you know how it is. Like you get put into a little study group and it's super intense and it's law school and they were wonderful women and they were all partnered up and I was not. So I always held this idea, they're better than me. I'm not good enough. I'm so different than them. And it was really hard to get close to me because I was... That way of thinking meant that I pushed them away. And so what it looked like is they would say, Christy, we're all going to happy hour. Come with us. And I would say, yeah, maybe I'll meet you there. And I wouldn't show up. You know, when they would go out and do things, I would come for a little while, a little while, but then I would leave without saying goodbye. And they'd be like, where did you go? And I just did not have very good skills. Just, I could have said, hey guys, I'm leaving or happy hour's not my jam. I'll see you at school on Monday. Like I just couldn't be honest. You can't really be, I was not able to be intimate because I was so ashamed that I didn't drink and I was uncomfortable around drinking at the time. And I just had all these secrets and barriers, both mental and physical, that it sort of was hard to get close to me. And then the minute something awkward happened, I would just kind of slowly emotionally back away. And it would be like drifting. It wasn't always like violent dust-ups. It would just be like, I kind of drifted and didn't let myself fully attach or let anyone attach to me. And I got to be in my mid thirties and this was still happening to me. And tell, if you don't mind not to just like jump right in here after we're talking <laughs> sure. for five minutes, tell me about the most traumatic parts of your life. But, but <laughs> yes. could you talk about your eating disorder a little bit more for people who don't maybe have the background or know how that affected you on a deeper level, which you write about throughout your work. Yeah, I, I started, I mean, my eating disorder, the hallmark of my eating disorder was secrecy. I mean, that's the most salient and toxic feature of it. So starting even in, I mean, I remember second grade stealing food. I, the one time, like, I'm a real good girl. That's sort of my thing. But I, the one time I got in trouble at school is because I stole some graham crackers and somebody saw me and I got busted. And so that's how big my eating disorder was starting really little. And I was, I was a secret eater, binging. And then I added purging to the mix by the time I was in high school. And that's a huge secret. And if you're carrying a huge secret, I didn't want anyone to know. And I was super weird around food. Like I wouldn't eat. We'd go out and I would have like, I'll just have a salad. But I was a bigger girl. It must have seemed obvious to everyone. I was definitely eating more than a salad, but I did it all in secret. And once you have those kinds of secrets, it's very hard to like really let people see you. As a practical matter, I couldn't eat around anyone. It was all secretive. So I was grateful enough when I got to college and the bulimia was picking up the pace. And I was scared. At one time I fainted in the shower while I was in the middle of binging and purging. And I thought, oh my God, I'm, I, I could die like this. Like I'm, I'm like Karen Carpenter, I'm gonna die. And I got myself into a 12 step recovery program, which certainly helped me arrest my eating. I'm very, very grateful for it. But eating disorders are really, really, really tricky. And half the time, even if my eating was like under control, 
I, I deeply hate in my body and suffer from body dysmorphia, which is another way to just be different. Like there's something wrong with me and my body's gross. I thought my friends were all super beautiful. They would, they knew there was something going on with me and they would try to pump me up. But it, what was going on in, in me was so much deeper than your friend, your girlfriend saying, you look beautiful. I love your body. Like that wasn't going to touch what was going on inside of me. It's so funny. I mean, not funny, but not like I know you so well, having read two books and like gone to media events and seen you at parties and done two podcasts and whatever. But like from the book, you would think that you were not so easy to like. Like you're so likable. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Oh, that's like, so nice. <laughs> you seem like you would be everybody's good friend. Like you're introspective and have a great writing voice and a, you're funny and and yet you're struggling with friendship. So it's actually almost even better to use you as an example to be like, I may seem like I, it would be super easy for me, but it isn't. So. Yeah. I, that's such a, that's, that's wonderful feedback. Thank you. And I think that it really highlights my internal processes. I think at the end of the day, I'm really scared of people. I'm, I'm scared. I don't know why nothing so traumatic happened. I mean, lots of women had eating disorders and they're not like writing books about how they couldn't make friends. I just, when people get close to me, I panic. And it's the thing I desperately want the most. And what the real impediment, it's not my body, it's not my boyfriends, it's not my status. What it is, is these internal ways of thinking and being and interacting. If I wanted to have close friendships, which I longed for, I was going to have to like peel that back and look at it. And I did it with a buddy, which in some, like in group, if anybody's read it, like that's all about a I had a wacky therapist and he went to the Ivy Leagues. It was very hierarchical and I had to pay a lot of money for it. But with the work I did around friendship, I did it with a buddy and we just, we made it up as we went along and we both seemed to get better. And I love giving the message, like therapy's great. I'm still go, I love it. But also there's things you can do outside of your insurance plan and an office that you and a buddy could do. And I really want people to know that that kind of healing is also available. Well, your relationship with Meredith from the beginning, I loved when she gave you the set of scarves with all the holidays. <laughs> that was so sweet. Oh my gosh. I'm like, what a nice lady. And you described her so well as like this sort of almost plucked from the 1980s power suit type totally. woman who I could just so visualize when you wrote about how, how you met her and then how you know, you weren't even necessarily so close to the beginning. And then it, over time, things changed and you ended up becoming hugely, hugely important to each other. And talk about like just the meaning of that friendship. I mean, that's like your whole book. So, I mean, you don't have to, <laughs> yeah. but you know, something about it, like, and why write a whole book about it? You know, it's one thing to, you know, appreciate somebody, but why a book? That's a great question. And when I think about Meredith's and I, I always zoom back to when we met. And, and just like you said, she was totally, I thought she was a meteorologist. She was sort of dressed in, <laughs> like she had a gold pin on her lapel and she had these little pumps on. And I was this, I hadn't even gone to law school yet. I was working as a secretary and trying to get my boyfriend. And my, this was like three boyfriends later, still dating drunks. And I was trying to get him sober. And I met her and I didn't see her as a friend because she was 20 years older, which now I'm all for, and I understand friendship comes in all shapes, sizes, and ages. But at the time I had such narrow, immature thinking. I almost had the thinking when I met her, I was 23 and she was like 43, which is not now that doesn't seem like anything to me. 
But at the time I was like, well, we're not in the same grade. Like, you know, I just was like, I'm supposed to be friends who, who are like me. And as we became friends, I realized how by limiting my definition of who could be a friend and what a friend looked like, I had missed a lot of opportunities, of course, along the way. And in terms of writing a book about her, when I started, I knew I was going to write about friendship. I didn't know it was going to become a book, but I knew I wanted to write about it. And my initial, my, my initial book was so bad, Zibby. It was just <laughs> called the, the Jealousy Journal. And it was, just, oh. it was just me and all the people I was jealous of because I really, really <laughs> deeply struggle. I could fill a book. I could That's do funny. 200 pages. I like that. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and I thought it was going to be like funky and experimental and super revealing. And it was just like, it ended up being like a list of people I was really either envious or jealous of. And guess what? Nobody wants that book. And um, my agent and I went back to sort of the drawing board and she, she had known about my friend Meredith. And she said, why don't you start at her, the book opens and I'm at her memorial service and I'm eulogizing her. So I guess that's a spoiler alert, except as in the first four pages, you know, that she has passed on. And I, as soon as my agent and I started having this conversation, I realized she is essentially the spine of the story. She's the one who tapped me on the shoulder. She's the inside. She is the inciting incident, right? And I love that. But you know what? Even when, once my agent suggested that, I sat on it for like three months because I thought, well, that was my agent's idea. I didn't come up with it. It doesn't count. Like I was really like, well, I guess I should have thought of that. But then my agent was like, where, where are these scenes? Where, where is your book? <laughs> I was like, I guess I'll, I'll guess I'll try. And it just took me, I had to back into it. And I think I had shame about backing into it. Like I thought books were supposed to drop into you and then you write them. And I didn't have that experience. And it took me a while to really attach to this book and let it become deeper in me and deeper on the page. Interesting. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What are some of the other books in the idea file that you have percolating <laughs> oh right now? Well, I, no, okay, here's another book that nobody wants that I'm writing. And yeah. I'm like, 
listen to this elevator pitch. I want to write a book about what it's like to be living in a house. Like I have teenage children. They're almost teenagers. Their bodies are blossoming and they're becoming, my body is shutting down, if you know what I'm saying. And then I've got parents who are, are like winding down in this very profound way. And I have moments where I'm like, whose body matters? I mean, ultimately, I think I'm talking about sandwich generation stuff and menopause. I don't know who wants this book, but I'm very interested. Like there, <laughs> like there, there are moments, I want this right? book. <laughs> there, there are moments where, I, where I'm literally like trying to take care of my daughter who and, and my son who are having their teenage hormone, all the things that happen for them and their bodies. And then I've got like my dad's had some neurological challenges and they're in their 80s. And and then there's my body, and which I it's last on the list. It's last. I'm sure I, I know your life. You you probably have this exact same thing. And I'm like, well, when when does my body? I'm not even talking about my knees. I'm talking about my physical body. When does my body matter? And when should it matter? I don't know the answer to that. So it's going to be a bestseller, Zibby. <laughs> I cannot wait to read that. I, I know you're joking about it, but that is exactly what I want to read right now. That is exactly where I am. <laughs> I have teenage kids. I have the same stuff. So I personally would love to read that book. So yeah, write it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm working on it. And I'm sort of like, there. I think there's a lot of us. I think there's a lot of us in this situation. And I just kind of want to give voice to it. I haven't even like gone to the dentist. It's embarrassing in how long. And my girlfriends had to like, literally after the pandemic, I didn't go to the doctor for some, finally they were like, you have to go get a checkup. And I'm like, I'm fine. Anyway, it turns out I was fine, but you just don't know. You know, I waited right. so long. And then you had- And I'm sure you stories. took your kids that whole time. Oh, I'm totally. Sure your kids were all up to date. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was holding them up. I would put it, I put like a scale on Zoom and weighed them, the little guys, <laughs> for the pediatrician during the pandemic because I wouldn't miss a thing. But yeah, for me, forget right. it. And yes, and the parents too. I mean, anyway, I think that's great. What do you feel like somebody needs to know about your friendship with Meredith that is like the thing that you can't let go of? Is it the fact that she was older? Is it the fact that she was an unlikely friend? Is it how much she ended up helping you with your other relationships? Like, what do you think it really is? Oh, that's such a good question. I think what it is with Meredith, she's my only friend. I've, I, I have been very blessed. I have not had other friends who have died and she is my first. And what I realized in the work that we did together is during transitions is where I'm most likely to drop off. Like we all graduated. Bye. I'll see you never. I didn't know how to like, I had an email address. I didn't know how to stay connected to college friends or graduate school friends or law school friends. I would just like out of sight, out of mind. I didn't know how to do that. And Meredith is as out of sight and out of mind as any friend I've ever had. And I still feel extremely connected to her. I feel her I feel the reverberations of her in my life every single day. And now, now you asked earlier, like, why write a book about it? I get to talk about her every single day when, when I talk about BFF. And at some point, people are going to stop talking to me about BFF, and that's fine, too. But she lives now out in the world, and she's now a gift to other people. But the idea, this is the final blow to that false narrative I carried about myself that I can't hold on through transition because I'm still holding her quite tightly and she's quite gone. And that's the part that really just, it still ins inspires me about the story and still 
feels so alive to me, which I did not know, you know, when she was, when she got sick and we knew it was going to be the end, I didn't know she would still be, now it's been three and a half years. I didn't know we would still be so, I mean, it sounds crazy. I still feel very close to her. So I'm, that's the part that feels the most, I treasure that the most. I don't think that sounds crazy at all. Thank you. I lost a girlfriend, like, how many years ago? 23 years ago. I still talk about her all the time. I don't know. Yes. Essentially writing about loss and people we love. It's like, you know, time travel or yes, wizardry or I don't know. I, I can't, <laughs> like you're conjuring, right? You're conjuring the spirit. Right. I imagine you had that with bookends when you were talking, Stacy, right? Oh my gosh. I can't believe it. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Like oh that's God. like, I felt, I felt the kinship when I read that this summer I thought, oh, this is, Zibby knows this keeping alive. And once oh. you put them in a book, that now Stacy and Zibby's friendship belongs to the world. It's it's a totally extraordinary thing. Well, maybe Stacy and Meredith are hanging. And hey! <laughs> I love that. That's a great idea. They're hanging. They're listening to our podcast. And they're like, oh, nice to meet you. I wouldn't have met you otherwise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, look at, look at those girls down there. They're doing awesome. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so what was it like having group become such a huge hit? Oh my gosh. It was so, I think I did. I think I had a ton of denial. Like I kind of didn't fully, I couldn't look at it straight on. And it was, I think part of that was the pandemic. I was just sort of, I would get emails like these things are happening. I mean, obviously I knew they called me and they said, Reese is going to put her sticker. And I screamed and I like screamed for hours. It seems like, (laughs) and that was just like, I, I still think to myself, like, wow, I can't believe that happened to me. And it was really, I, I, it was all good. Literally, it was all good. And I still get emails from people about their relationships with their therapist or looking for a therapist or other parts of the book too. Like I have an eating disorder and I'm in law school and I love those letters. I always respond, at least I think I do. And I did not know that I would be so connected to readers. I did not know that readers sent emails to authors. Like I've never done that. I'm a huge reader and I didn't know you could do that. So that was so moving and so touching to me. And it was really, it was amazing. I would say that the, there's not a downside to any of this, but when it was time to settle down and get back in my body and work on the next thing, it was super hard. Cause I was like, I'm never going to be able to top that. I, I can't, I can't top that. And I had to let go of the idea that I had to top it or I was supposed to, and just like get very still and very quiet in my own heart and mind and see if there was anything I wanted to say and then, and then get to work. You know, I just shut all of that out and get to work. And I, I was like telling everyone, I, I love this green baby, even though Reese's sticker isn't on it. Like the book VFF, the book cover is green. And I get to love that baby, even though she may not go to all the same places that group went and just make peace with all of that. There was a whole process around that. And I'm glad I did it. Like there's room in my heart for both experiences. It's totally different. And it's extraordinary to have a, a, a base like group to jump off from. That's just extraordinary. It is extraordinary. I mean, they're both wonderful, really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, there are so many different parts. It's like there's so many different parts of all of us that if we were to just slice them all, right, and see how many people relate to this and how many relate to that and what's unique. And, you know, it's just like like you're in the kitchen, just 
Yes. Way to slice it. (laughs) Exactly. That's a great way to put it. So what is your advice, especially, you know, on the heels of success, getting back into it? And like, does it feel as overwhelming as when you were trying to do it in the first place? You know, how do you, how do you do the work? Like you said, you know, you were forcing yourself into it and like sitting down. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, and this won't surprise anybody who knows me or any of my work, like I really relied on the groups that I'm in, like my writing groups. I'm in three or four writing groups now. I just, you know, I leaned on them. Like, I don't think I can do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And they would say, well, why don't you write one scene? What about one scene and mm. send it to us? And I had to break things down into like really tiny chunks, which is probably what I did. I think I just don't remember. Like when I start, I started group in 2015 and I had to learn the skill beyond the craft. I had to learn the skill of you write a book scene by scene. You don't sit down and write a book. You sit down and you write a scene. And sometimes I would sit down and I'd write a sentence, a topic sentence, if you will. And I think the advice is, get it down to manageable chunks and have people around you. It doesn't have to be a writing group. Just have people around you who's like patting your head, bringing you a snack metaphorically or actually, and surround yourself with people who believe in you, who are also doing the work, like being around other people who were working on their books and saying hard things. And you don't ever know, no one, no one knows how their work is going to be received. So being surrounded by other people who are engaging in that vulnerability was really helpful to me. I love that. That's so great. Just write a sentence. Just write a topic. Yeah. That's so great. Thank you. Yeah. Write a noun. Write one noun. <laughs> write a noun. Go into the document and write a noun. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. That's your work for the day. Amazing. I think I could do that today. Maybe. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, are you reading anything amazing? Oh my gosh. Yes. I, (laughs) I'm finally reading Daisy Jones and the six, (laughs) which I'm super excited. I have never read Taylor Jenkins read and my daughter's just tearing through all those books and she's not really a reader. And I'm like, well, I want to see what this is all about. And it's so much fun. I was reading empire of pain about the Sacklers. And then I went on book tour and I just could not, I, I could not do anything heavy And Daisy Jones and the Six has been the perfect, joyful distraction and just a fun read. I think I always put pressure on myself to read big, important books that say things about society. And sometimes you just want to read about like a rock and roll love story that is just a total delight. So that's getting me through the night. I love that. And the show's coming out. Yes. I was trying to finish before the show came out. Yes, exactly. I have a deadline. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> I like reading on deadline too. It's become my whole life. Yeah, I guess so. I hope you do. <laughs> Forcing pleasure into deadlines. It's like, then I know it gets done. <laughs> yeah. My, my therapist says that instead of calling them deadlines, he's like, what if you called it a lifeline? Oh my gosh. A little bit transformative, right? So good. Yeah. It's really good. You should write an essay about that. I know I should, because it's really helped me remember like what I'm doing this for. And like, I was a full-time lawyer two and a half years ago, like wham, wham, I have to read a book by a deadline. No, that's your lifeline to the life that you, you created this life. That's your lifeline. I, that's actually been one of the best things he's ever said to me. And he said a lot of things to me. (laughs) That's a really good one. Write it for Zibby Mag. We'll publish it. Great. I'll give that a shot. Oh my gosh. I love that. Ultimately we create all of our own deadlines anyway, right? We pick the things we're doing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. 
Wow. Well, this has been really helpful for me personally. So thank you for that. <laughs> me too. You know what? You, I'm going to get off this call and I'm going to go make a dentist appointment. And I am not kidding you. Okay. I'm going to go write it down. Okay. <laughs> Good. Look at us. We're going to get our work done. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Christy. Thanks, right. Libby. Goodbye. Right. <laughs> you too. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.